hope, peace, joy, and love from the one who rose up the sprout of Jesse to win salvation for us. Our text for our sermon is Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. Wait for the Lord. Every year during Advent, I cannot help but to put myself uh, in the shoes of an Old Testament believer waiting, waiting, waiting for that time when the Lord would take on human flesh. And most of them didn't have a clear conception of what that would look like at all. Well, we live in a time where the Lord did take on human flesh. He lived perfectly for you and I. He suffered every temptation for you and I, but withstood them. He suffered the punishment for our sins, was abandoned on the cross, died on the cross, rose victorious from that cross, and has ascended to heaven where he's ruling to bring us in and keep us in our faith. And so we're actually waiting for something else. We're waiting for the time when the Lord will return and give us the new heavens and the new earth and a glorified body ripping sin away forever from this world that we will never have to suffer the consequences or the effects again. But I don't know about you, but there are plenty of times as I'm waiting for the Lord, as our psalm says, wait for the Lord, be strong, take heart, wait for the Lord, where you go, okay, so I'm waiting for the Lord. But it sure seems like he isn't in a hurry. And so this year during our Advent series, our whole series will be the theme, questions for the coming of our Lord. And today's question is, why so long? Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. Wait for the Lord. This psalm had not been written and would be many thousands of years away from being written when Adam and Eve believed the devil's lie. They thought the devil was their friend and God was acting as their enemy. And they fell into the first sin. It is during that time that God comes to Adam and Eve and each one passes the buck and everything that God talking to the devil and even and obviously Adam as well says in Genesis 3 verse 15. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. Now it's interesting. The word used for seed here is not what women have. Women have an egg. The word used for seed is what a male supplies in a baby. So there's something about this prophecy that would seem weird. But by giving them faith that there would be a savior who would come and fix this problem, would crush the serpent's head, they would see the serpent as their enemy, as they should have, and would see God as their father. But there's more to this. Right after this verse, God turns to Eve and we're told in Genesis 3 verse 16 to the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Sin had ruined their relationship between the man and the woman. And and God's also going to tell the man that the world is cursed against him. They both bear the blame. But she's going to have painful child labor. So it is that a little while later in Genesis chapter 4 verse 1, we're told the man was intimate with Eve, his wife. She conceived and gave birth to a son. Sorry, gave birth to Cain. She said, I've gotten a man with the Lord. Now, it's interesting. The word she uses for I've gotten a man is not the word, as we used to say in older English, begotten, is delivered, gave birth to. It's actually a word for purchasing. It's an economic word. I've bought a man. In fact, we translate that something like obtained, acquired, or as our text, I've gotten. 
Many people think that what Eve is saying here is, uh, I have I've now had a child, and that was with the help of the Lord, and that certainly could be an understanding, but there's just so much weird wording which points to other things. I cannot help but to wonder if Eve, through her childbearing, through the pain she had, doesn't think she's given birth to the Savior. I have acquired this, and, and not with the help of the Lord, but that this child, this who's soon to be a man, will literally have the Lord with him at his side. Isn't thinking she's given birth to the Savior. Well, one can argue that either way, but she's going to be severely disappointed. Cain turns out to be an unbeliever. He knows of the Lord. The Lord even talks to him. The Lord rejects his offerings. It seems he gives his offering more out of it. Here, this will get the Lord off my back. And the children Cain have end up being unbelievers themselves. They are not raised seeing God as a gracious, loving God. And of course, Cain murders his brother Abel. It is some time after that, and there's a genealogy given with ages and stuff in Genesis. But in Genesis chapter 4, verse 25 through 26, we're told Adam... And at this time, he'd be 130 years old, was intimate with his wife again. She gave birth to a son and named him Seth because she said, God has set another child in place of Abel for me since Cain killed him. Later, a son was born to Seth. And this is when Seth's 105 years old, if we follow the genealogy. He named him Enosh. This is when people began to proclaim the name of the Lord. So when Enosh is born, Adam is over 235 years old. What does it mean that the people begin to proclaim the name of the Lord? Well, the name of the Lord is everything God has revealed to us, and especially today, I would be in scriptures, about what he does for us. So Redeemer, Savior, these are all names that tell us what God does for us. But if you think about it, uh, when we proclaim the word of the Lord, we are proclaiming it to edify those who are believers to strengthen their faith, but also we can proclaim it doing evangelism to share what God does for us for those who aren't believers. And it seems both are taking place. The descendants of Seth, who are believers, are gathering together to proclaim the name of the Lord, to say, look what the Lord does, to say, wait for the Lord, be strong, take heart and wait for the Lord. The Savior is going to come, who's going to fix all of this but they also are sharing the good news of salvation in the coming Savior. However, things go from bad to worse, don't they? Eventually, there's a flood, and just Noah and his sons and their wives are saved. And there's quite some time, it's better than 2,000 years after Adam had been made, uh, God calls this descendant of Shem, who was one of the sons of Noah, he calls this guy named Abram out of idolatry. And, and at that time, it's in the city of Ur of, uh, of the Sumerians. And he will go back to his father's homeland, uh, which is Haran. And he's an, he's an Aramean. And it, it, even there, while he's in, 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 at his hometown, the Lord calls him to leave that and wander, never owning land again except for the burial site for himself and his wife and, and, his, come, and his children. And God calls him, or his original name is Abram, which means Big Daddy, basically. God will rename him later to Abraham, which means father of many. But when God calls him to go to that land that will eventually be the nation of Israel, which will be taken from the Canaanites, uh, we are told in Genesis 12, chapter 12, verse 3, God says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse anyone who dishonors you. All the families of the earth will be blessed in you. Since Genesis 3, verse 15, this is the one passage where if a person's looking could unmistakably see, 
okay, the Savior is going to be born through Abraham. All the families of the earth will be blessed in you. That means the Savior's coming from Abraham. There's a few other prophecies, for example, that uh, Noah says to Shamor. If you've got New Testament clarity, you can say, ah, oh, that's what's going on. But I don't think the people of that time would have connected those dots. So, here we are, waiting for the Lord. What if, wait for the Lord, be strong, take heart, and wait for the Lord. Now, we continue, though, if we think about it, Adam, or Abraham and his wife Sarah are at times aren't so good at waiting for the Lord. For example, during that time that they're supposed to be wandering in the promised land, there's a drought and instead of staying in the promised land and trusting in the Lord, they go down to Egypt. And Abraham says to his wife Sarah, you're a very beautiful woman. They will kill me to get you. So say you're my sister. And she ends up in Pharaoh's uh, harem, if you will. Now, the Lord intervenes before anything can happen. But now, God's going to have to wait a couple of years even before there's another child, before they have the child through whom the Savior would come. That would be the child Isaac because it would look like uh, it was Pharaoh's child. And later they'll make the same mistake going to the Philistines, uh, the king of the Philistines, Abimelech. Abraham commits the same sin and Abimelech takes Sarah into his harem and the Lord has to intervene, sending a disease among uh, Abimelech, the, the king of the Philistines uh, household. Once again, you think, gee, and we wouldn't know unless we get to talk to God in all eternity. By then I won't care. But they might have had Isaac several years sooner, but again, it might look like Abimelech was the father. Sometimes, Sarah, at one time, Sarah comes up with her own idea because she's having a hard time waiting for the Lord. She's not being strong and taking heart. And it's a comfort for you and I because we have a hard time too, right? And so the time goes on and they do have Isaac and uh, Abraham is 99 years old. And it's, then they have uh, Isaac and Isaac has twins. And it's, so it'd be Abraham's great-grandson, Judah, through whom the promise would come, that would come as, uh, as his father Jacob is on his deathbed and he blesses, says a blessing for all 12 of the sons. In Genesis 49, verse 10, Jacob says to Judah, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until the one to whom it belongs comes. He will receive the obedience of the peoples. Judah's not ruling over anything at this time. And so uh, again, even when Christ did come, people were expecting an earthly king out of this Savior. And, and this was definitely confirmed that the Savior is going to be some kind of a king. And clearly he'll be a descendant of Judah. Well, the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt and then they're led out and then they conquer the promised land. And we have this weird book, the book of Ruth, where uh, this family, because of a drought, go to the land of Moab. And one of the boys, both of the sons, marry Moabite women. But one of them, Ruth, she becomes a Jew, a Jewish believer. She looks for the coming Savior and she won't leave her mother-in-law when all the family dies but herself and her mother-in-law. And she ends up marrying what's called the kinsman redeemer, Boaz. So the child that's conceived between them would be considered Naomi, her mother-in-law's grandchild. And this book seems very obscure until we understand that child was Obed and Obed would be the father of Jesse. Jesse would be the father of David. One of many times when you think about it, like when Pharaoh uh, 
commanded that every male child be killed that was a child of the Hebrew slaves, that would have wiped out the Jewish people. That would have wiped out the coming Savior. And we find out through the book of Ruth that the Lord had to preserve the lineage of the Savior. By the way, Ruth, uh, Tamar, who was the daughter-in-law of Judah, and in between them uh, was a woman who uh, protected the spies when they came to spy out Jericho. Three Gentile women are in Jesus's lineage, which again shows us that salvation was for the Gentiles as well. Well, the Israelites, uh, they end up, David gets the promise for the coming savior. David has that one really big sin. His son Solomon uh, ends up having, having the promise, but Solomon falls from the faith and seems to come back. And then a lot of their, kid, a lot of their descendants after that aren't so faithful when the Babylonians come and haul everything off. And there's even a time when the Persians are ruling, when the king of Persia uh, he has a beauty contest to select his wife and she hides it. But this woman named Esther is a, a Jewish woman, hides her identity as a Jewish woman. And it turns out being later, there's a member of the king's cabinet who wants to exterminate all the Jewish people. And again, there would be no savior, a descendant of Abraham. So even though Esther was not in the savior's lineage, the Lord actually used Esther to preserve the coming of the Savior. The people are allowed to return from captivity. Wait for the Lord, be strong, take heart, wait for the Lord. When is the Lord coming? Thousands of years now since Adam and Eve have were promised the Savior. The people are slow to rebuild the temple when they're allowed to return. They're slow to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And, and God has to send prophets and stuff to talk to them. And ultimately, there's the prophet Malachi, and he speaks prophecy, even prophesies about the coming Savior. And then there's 450 years of silence. All the people could do for 450 years, and they get picked on by the Greeks in that. For 450 years of silence, all they could do is what Psalm 27 verse 14 said. Wait for the Lord, be strong, take heart, wait for the Lord. And then one day a priest named Zechariah enters into the temple. He draws the lot and for the first time in his life and the only time he's going to be allowed to make an offering on the incense altar. And the angel Gabriel appears to him. The silence is finally broken. You and I know the rest of the story. The Savior did come for you and I. He took on human flesh and he lived in our place. He died in our place. He rose and, and he's ruling over creation for us. Why so long for the Savior to come? And why so long now as we wait for him to return, as we continue doing what the psalm says, wait for the Lord, be strong, take heart, and wait for the Lord? Well, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to do what he promised, as some consider slowness. Instead, he's patient for your sakes, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. Why was the Lord so slow in taking on human flesh? Because he wanted to save you. He wanted to save those people who came before you. Why is the Lord so slow in returning? Because he wants to save you and he wants to use you to save others. So in Ephesians chapter one, verses nine through 12, we're told, he made known to us the mystery of his will, keeping with his good purpose, which he planned in Christ. This was to be carried out when the time had fully come in order to bring all things together in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we've also obtained an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in keeping the purpose of his will. He did this so that his glory would be praised as a result of us who were the first to hope in Christ. 
Salvation comes from the Jewish people, right? The, the descendants of Abraham who were promised the coming Savior. They got that promise first in time, not in priority. It was clearly always meant to be for the Gentiles as well. And in the fullness of time, it's interesting, God waits till the Romans were ruling. And here's where we really start to get to the answer, why so long? Did you know that when the Romans ruled over Israel, they had the best roads and the safest roads to travel on until about 100 years ago, less than 100 years ago here in America, with the uh, interstate system that happened under President Eisenhower, suddenly we finally surpassed a travel system. And I'm pointing that out because the Romans themselves used to say, and the people in the Roman Empire, all roads lead to Rome. So Jesus comes when there is uh, safe travel, the safest travel human history will have until, like I said, the last hundred years. And all the roads lead to the, to the center of, of Rome, to the, to, to the city of Rome itself. And it's interesting, for example, the Apostle Paul, when he writes the epistle to the Romans, that is a congregation that started without any of the apostles visiting it. There were just enough Christians coming and going out of Rome that the word spread. The Savior in his perfect timing, the Lord waited until there was the road system, the expectation in the world and everything to save both the Jews and the Gentiles. And it mentioned predestination. God has waited for you to come into the faith. So you and I now are simply waiting until that time when our Savior will return and give us the new heavens and the new earth. And until then, we continue doing what our sermon text, Psalm 27, verse 14 says, wait for the Lord, be strong, take heart, wait for the Lord. So what are we to do when we're unbelievers and then the Lord sends somebody to share his word? We have a Savior. Well, we're going to be just like Simeon was in Luke chapter 2 verses 28 through 32 where when Jesus was presented at the at the temple we're told Simeon took him into his arms and praised God he said Lord you now dismiss your servant in peace according to your word because my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared before the face of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel you and I when we hear we have a savior and the Lord gives us faith in that savior we embrace his word about that Savior, and we're glad to hear it, and we're glad to apply it. We rejoice like Simeon holding his Savior in his hands. Now, you and I wait until then. We have a hope, a hope in his return, but our hope is not like the hope of the unbelieving world that is really, you know, against the odds type thing. In Romans 8, verses 24 through 25, we're told, indeed, it was for this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. Because who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for something we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patient endurance. You and I know that the Savior has come. We confidently expect him to return because he's fulfilled all of the scriptures. In the meantime, we are happy to share his word with our brother and sister in Christ who may need it applied in a, in a, in a time when they're, when they're being attacked by the devil, when they're feeling depressed, or who may misunderstand the word. We're happy to have them do the same for us. And we thank the Lord when we get to share that word with the neighbor who does not have faith so that they too start waiting. But our waiting is a confident expectation. And so, yes, we wait for the Lord, but we know he's already come. So we've asked today questions in the coming of our Lord, why so long? And the answer is in his perfect timing, because God wanted you to be saved. 
And up until that point, he had a plan for everybody in the ancient world. And now he wants you to share that word with his neighbor, with your neighbor, so that your neighbor is also saved. In the meantime, we have a promised Savior. We have had him promised to us since Adam and Eve fell into sin. And in God's perfect timing, that Savior came to redeem all. He took on our human flesh in the time when the world would spread. The only way it could spread any faster is today with our internet now. And in the meantime, we have faith in that promise that we are always children of God. And when he returns, we will rejoice like Simeon did the day he got to hold the baby Jesus. We will rejoice because we'll have what we have hoped for, what we've confidently expected. And so let's end our sermon with how we began it. Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart. Wait for the Lord. You wait for the Lord by staying strong in his word, which nourishes your faith that the Savior will come. Amen. And now the brilliant light of Christ will continue to shine on our sin enshrouded hearts and his light will continue to guide us, uh, guide our feet onto his path of peace. Amen.